Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 60. Um, this will be Part 2 of Protective and Decorative Finishes. So protective coatings extend the useful lives of objects, especially those made from moisture-absorbent or moisture-sensitive materials, paints, stains, and clear film finishes. These provide the basic protection necessary to accomplish this. However, when the protective coating is enhanced by the use of color and pattern, the result extends the concept of protection to include decoration. From the prehistoric cave paintings of Lascaux, France, to the murals and wallpapers of the late Renaissance, humans have been decorating the walls, ceilings, and floors of their living spaces with painted imagery for thousands of years. The practice of enhancing the exterior appearance and perceived value of a building or object by making it appear to be constructed of more expensive materials has been common throughout our history. Many of the earliest decorative painters were originally from France and Italy. The terminology used to describe decorative painting and finishes thus has French and Italian origins, generally speaking. Decorative painting terms like faux finish, trompe l'oeil, and fresco were taken directly from their country of origin to describe their processes. Decorative painters performed a variety of applications. Some were skilled artists who could paint murals, such as a painter who would paint a still life or landscape. Others created patterns that were painted freehand or employed a system of stencils. The various periods of decorative painting gave rise to notable examples of each technique. Rufus Porter was an acclaimed stencil painter whose work along with the Eastern Seaboard is now highly prized. Muralists such as John Lafarge decorated many buildings across this country. Stencils were hand painted on virtually any surface on the interior of the building. Stenciling was promoted as a sanitary alternative to wallpaper, since it did not attract insects and other vermin and was less expensive than wallpaper. Stencils were applied to the entire wall. The field above the chair rail, the frieze just below the ceiling, or as a border around the window and door openings. Stenciling was also done on floors and ceilings, especially along the perimeter near the wall. While stenciling had been used in the 18th century, there were two periods of heightened popularity in the 19th century. The first occurred between 1810 and 1840, and the second during the Victorian period of the late 19th century. The popularity of stenciling declined significantly in the early 20th century. A stencil could be composed of one or more colors. Some simple patterns were considered naive and could have been done by a less skilled painter, a child. Many, however, were sophisticated and took into account color relationships, the proportion of elements, and the pattern proportion relative to the size of the room. A stencil was created by drawing the outline of the decorative subject on a thin piece of tracing paper. The drawing was then secured to a thin, sturdy piece of paper that served as a stencil template for applying a particular color. Pinholes were punched along the outline of the decorative pattern. 
A stencil was created by removing the paper from the areas outlined by the pinholes in the stencil paper. In multiple color applications, stencils were also pierced with registration marks to align each succeeding stencil mark. Once the sequence of stencils was established, the first one was secured to the wall and its color was painted into the openings created by the holes in the stencil paper. The stencil was then removed and when the paint dried, the next stencil was attached to the wall, aligning the registration marks. This process was repeated until all of the colors had been applied and the stenciled pattern was complete. The process was then repeated along the surface until the stenciling formed a continuous repeating pattern around the room. In some instances, the colors were applied solidly to fill the opening in the stencil paper. In others, artistic and painterly effects were added to each color as it was added. Stencils were either repeating classical or folk patterns. Classical patterns, popular during the Federal or Greek Revival periods, gained geometric patterns including Greek keys, alternating stripes, swags, urns, and simulated stone carving details, while folk patterns included vines and leaves, berries, flowers, stars, hearts, birds, stripes, and even curves. Stencils from the late Victorian period were typically emboldened with brighter colors and larger elements, such as crest, fleur-de-lis, and other robust symbols used of that period. Trompe l'oeil, literally meaning trick of the eye, was devised as a means of concealing an otherwise plain or unsightly surface by adding visual delight. Originally, trompe l'oeil was used to recreate the effects of shadow and light produced by a three-dimensional object. One common method was a Grisel technique that took advantage of varying shades of gray to simulate the lighting effects found on the actual plaster molding. On interiors, in addition to simulated three-dimensional ornament, flat plaster walls were decorated with trompe that began to create such things as striped tent panels, furniture, pastoral views through a non-existent window, and many other whimsical or serious images. On exterior walls, trompe l'oeil has often been used to create advertisements or depict a more interesting facade than what may have originally existed. In the 18th century, murals or frescoes were painted on walls. In some cases, murals were painted on sheets of paper secured to the ceiling or wall. In others, the painting was done directly on the plaster ceiling or the wall surface. Murals were also painted on wood paneling over fireplaces, as well as on doors. Murals were less expensive than the decorative papers imported for use on ceilings or walls and were created by freehand brushstrokes painting methods. They were popular totally throughout the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century and had a revival in the early 20th century in commercial and civic buildings. While murals declined in popularity in private dwellings, large civic buildings, including state capitals, city halls, and museums and libraries constructed in the past 150 years, they feature a number of murals that celebrate aspects of local history and cultural events in that area.
So during the Depression, the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, commissioned unemployed painters to paint murals in post office throughout the country. False or faux finishes were the most common means of giving less expensive materials the appearance of more expensive ones. These techniques, called faux bois and faux marbre, were a form of trompe l'oeil that transformed lesser materials into imitation wood and marble. Pine and fir were painted to look like oak, maple, mahogany, and other exotic woods in the faux bois process, no more commonly, commonly as graining. The faux marbre process was used to simulate marble and is also caused, called marbling. Graining consists of matching both the color and pattern of the figure or grain and around and background of a specific species of wood as it would appear under a clear finish. An assortment of brushes, feathers, implements were used to recreate the wavy pattern reveals when wood was cut along the grain. Knots, burls, and other features could be created if so desired. Similarly, in marbling, Veins and intrusions could be simulated to create the appearance of marble and other expensive stones. Architectural metals provides an opportunity to decoratively finish a variety of materials. Wood and metal objects were covered in gold, silver, and copper. Lesser metals were plated to give them a more distinctive and decorative finish. In addition to adding decorative metal to surfaces, a number of methods use chemical washes to create a decorative patina on them. In a more general conservation strategy, protective coatings have long been used to protect metals from decay. One form of decorative surface finishing, dating back several millennia, involved gilding metal onto non-metal surfaces using sheets of metal hammered into an extremely thin, almost tissue-like, dimension-free, as a leaf. The metals originally used were gold, silver, copper. The surface being leafed was treated with gesso or sizing, and then the leaf was applied. A coating, usually shellac or lacquer, was applied to seal and protect the leaf. Leafing could be done to interior or exterior elements of the building. In the 19th century, to reduce cost, tissue-thin sheets of Dutch metal, which is a brass coating of 84% copper and 16% zinc were applied with little or no visible difference than the more expensive gold leaf. Electroplating was used to secure an ornamental metal to the surface of a less valuable metal. For example, a thin surface layer of nickel or German silver could be secured to the surface of lesser metals. In this process, the object, for example, a brass faucet, that was to be plated with a nickel finish was attached to a negative lead of a battery and placed in a salt solution containing nickel ions. On the positive lead, a nickel rod was attached and placed in the solution. As the electrical current flowed from the positive to the negative conductor, the nickel ions were attracted to the plating object and secured through the oxidation process. Meanwhile, ions from the nickel rod replaced the ions removed from the plated surface. When the sufficient deposit was made on the plated surface, the object was removed, dried, and polished to the desired finish. 
A variety of methods have evolved to create patinas on a metal surface from, for ornamental purposes. These generally involve mixtures of acids or salts that react with the metal surface to either oxidize or to color it in some way. In this manner, brass can be darkened to copper or bronze can be aged in appearance. The degree to which the patina forms a function of chemical strength, metal reactivity, and dwell time. The time of the metal remains in contact with the solution. In many many modern rehabilitation projects, brand new materials are treated in this fashion to match existing original fixtures. Since exposed ferrous metals corroded easily, applying a lead-tin mixture, termed, or a zinc oxide paint became a common means of inhibiting corrosion on exposed ferrous metal sheet stock surfaces. Historically, these coatings were applied either by dipping the metal into a molten bath, which would be a hot dip galvanizing, of the coating material or by electroplating. A variety of paint coatings and sealants were also devised and used to inhibit rust and corrosion. Like other historic fabrics exposed to air, light, and moisture, paints and clear finishes decay can decay also. Many of the same decay processes from pollution, moisture, and abrasion that affect other materials can also affect these film finishes. Often, it is the failure of the surface finish that signals the presence of decay, especially when an opaque coating such as paint is involved. Beyond the mechanical failure of the surface, other problems include overpainting and soiling. The last two may actually be the result of poor maintenance practices. Surfaces have not been adequately maintained and become dirty. This leads to the new paint to being applied or improperly cleaned with the methods used, which instead can damage the surface finish. Lastly, lead was a common component in paint for many centuries. Its presence has now been linked to many health problems in young children. Pain and finish failures are caused by a variety of factors. Without proper surface preparation, such as sanding and scraping when repainting, or eventual (coughs) accumulations of paint may begin to break apart. This failure first appears as a light surface crack known as crazing, but then the surface continues to break apart through several cycles of inadequate prepared repaintings until the paint fails completely. Weekly bound paint will become chalk-like in texture. Paint that has aged and become brittle will break and rupture as daily thermal and moisture cycles can cause substrates to expand and contract profusely. The process causes the paint to look much like the skin of an alligator and hence called alligatoring. Inner layer failure occurs when two layers of incompatible paint may not bond and slough off over time. Moisture migrating out of the material will cause blistering. When the blister ruptures, the paint dries and can flake quite easily. So it's the beginning of the end. So one of the most common issues in painted decoration is layers of paint covering the original decoration. Not only can subsequent layers of paint cause stress in the earlier layers as more weight is added to the surface, but original details can be obscured or obliterated 
by the addition of, of later layers of paint or even clear film finishes. This commonly occurs during updating when previous faux finishes or clear finishes are painted to create a new appearance. This practice may have had its origins in the fact that early interiors were lit by non-electric lamps and heated by fireplaces and accumulated dirt and soot on any exposed surface. The practice may also have developed as aesthetic taste changed. Whatever the cause, the result is that the original features such as stenciling, faux finish, finishes, and murals have been routinely lost in the name of progress over the years. Coatings and clear finishes can become soiled through the exposure to air pollution, smoke and cooking fumes, and grime created by the natural oils on fingers and hands. When an inappropriate cleaning method is used, the coating can still fail. Modern cleansers containing harsh chemicals can destroy the surface finish or cause it to become clouded, darkened, or otherwise degraded. Exterior paint can be cleaned with a low-pressure water wash and mild detergents. Interior paints and clear finishes can be cleaned using mild soaps and non-abrasive cleaners. As with any cleaning project, a small test section in a hidden location should be used to assess the effectiveness and effect of the cleaning process. Several tests may be needed to find the best process. Unfortunately, even people with the best intentions can do irreparable damage when they use inappropriate cleaning methods and products on historic finishes and buildings. For example, a volunteer at a small historic church attempting to clean a pew used a modern cleaning product that removed the original historic graining on a prominent portion of the pew before realizing what was happening. Some cleaning processes may seem counterintuitive in that they clean in that the cleaning product may be marked as made for wood surfaces, but in reality, it is the finish on the wood that is being cleaned rather than the wood itself. For instance, tests revealed that when vegetable soap was used on a polyurethane-finished hardwood floor, the long-term result was a buildup of the dried vegetable oil, which degraded the appearance of the floor and then hampered efforts to refinish it at all. Lead was a primary component in paint for many centuries. Long valued for its durability, lead paint became unpopular when its effects, ill effects on health were fully understood. Research revealed that long-term exposure to lead can cause learning and hearing disabilities in humans, especially young children. In 1978, lead was banned for use in house paint. Unfortunately, the date makes it extremely likely that lead paint was used in houses from the historic period described throughout all of our episodes. Testing kits are available to confirm the presence of lead. These kits include a solution that is applied to the suspected surface, then change color, for example, purple or black, in the presence of lead. For multiple layers of paint, locate a hidden spot, scratch the paint through the layers beneath the surface, and then test for lead. Alternatively, ultraviolet light can be used to detect lead. Various paints will fluoresce in different tones that can be used to indicate the presence of lead. There is also portable and handheld devices that use X-ray fluorescence technology to identify the existence of lead paint below the visible surface.
While removal of the lead is not required, the presence of all lead-based materials, including paint, must be disclosed to any potential buyer or renter. In lieu of complete removal, the painted surfaces that contain lead must be stabilized, and all loose and flaking painting must be removed following lead abatement guidelines available from your local county health department or building department. Typical interior paints are not sufficient to encapsulate lead paint over the long term. There are, however, epoxy-based paints for this purpose when necessary. When the historic and artistic merits of a particular finish of a decorative treatment are significant, employing a constant, or I'm sorry, employing a consultant who specializes in paint and finishes is imperative. The number of professionals who can perform the appropriate analysis and provide accurate findings and recommendations on how to proceed is limited. This is especially true for murals, faux finishes, trompe l'oeil, and stencils. The best experts have a long waiting list and many unavailable in the short term. The SHOP and other prominent state and national preservation organizations maintain directories of paint consultants. When suitable excerpts have been identified, ask them for a portfolio of their project work and reference from the previous clients. When possible, visit former projects to view the results. Other painting tasks, such as painting the overall exterior, may be completed by local contractors based on their qualifications and pricing. Simply going with the lowest bid may not be the best method, since there are usually other factors concerning preservation sensitivity, awareness of local requirements regarding lead paint, abatement, and so forth. One important issue is that it is only necessary to address paint and finishes that have become unstable. Conservation means retaining the original materials in place. Restoration and repair involve the removal of any loose damage and unconsolidated paint and or finish. Complete removal and replacement of all paint or finishes, including intact finishes that remain otherwise well bonded to the surface, is not recommended. When limited removal is warranted, it should be done with the gentlest methods possible, hand scraping and sanding. Using a heat gun or a heat plate can speed up things in the the stripping process, but one must be careful not to singe or char the underlying substrate. There are also a variety of chemical strippers that can remove the finish, ranging from the extremely benign soy and citrus-based strippers to particularly nasty chemicals that contain methylene chloride or acetone toluene methanol or N-methanol pyridinone or dibasic esters, pure sodium hydroxide or ammonium hydroxide. The more powerful chemical strippers all come with specific health and safety concerns that should be investigated before using them. By no means should aggressive stripping methods like sandblasting, open flame blowtorching, or mechanical power strippers be used that could irreversibly damage the underlying substrate in any way, shape, or form. Concerns about health and sustainability have led to the increased use of low-volatile organic compounds, paints, and coatings. VOCs consist of chemicals that evaporate under normal room conditions. They are found in paints, paint strippers, cleaning products, carpets, and other building materials. As the VOC gasses off, 
it can cause both short and long-term health problems. As these compounds accumulate, they reduce the indoor air quality by contributing of, to what is known as sick building syndrome in inadequately ventilated buildings. Paint and finished surface treatments may be conserved as long as the surfaces of decay are identified and either removed or mitigated. Many of the safeguards and recommendations given for the surfaces described earlier in our episodes to these finishes as well. Remove moisture sources, limit access for abrasive contact, provide protective screening materials, protect surfaces during construction, and so on. Any conservation treatment should be reversible and should allow for appropriate elimination or prevention of trapped moisture. In interior spaces where light, especially ultraviolet light from the sun or fluorescent lighting, can cause color to fade, sunlight and fluorescent light need to be minimized. Period-appropriate drapes, shades, and other shading devices should be considered in mitigating low-related light decay. Inappropriate and non-compatible cleaning methods should be eliminated or replaced by methods that are benign. Harsh chemicals and abrasive cleansers are commonly the cause of rapid short-term decay of finishes. This problem usually can be quickly identified and corrected as long as the maintenance staff is required and they're adequately retrained. A common goal has been to accurately match the colors of a specific time period. Since removal of overlaying layers of paint to entirely reveal the particular layer is not advised, the primary goal is to identify the chronology of paint layers or establish a reasonable representation of the color used during the period of interest. There are two approaches to paint color analysis, scientific and historical. In the scientific method, there are three ways to identify paint coloration. Scraping, cratering, which is also known as surface polishing, and extracting, all of which cause nominal damage to the historic fabric. Scraping is done by simply scraping away layers of paint with a scalpel or hobby knife and solvents to reveal the successive layers of paint. Cratering is done by removing layers of paint with sandpaper and mineral oil in concentric circles. The paint is usually sanded with a piece of sandpaper down to the original surface material. Then, as each layer is revealed in larger concentric circles, the circle is expanded to reveal the next layer, leaving the rings formed by earlier sandings intact. Eventually, the circles are expanded to reveal all the layers of paint. These methods have several drawbacks, including alteration of the surface color while scraping and disruption of the overall surface. In the extracting approach, a small, discrete sample of paint and its wood or masonry surface substrate are cut from the surface. On paint and metal surfaces, the extraction method leaves the metal in place and only the paint layer portion of the sample is taken to the lab. The sample is then mounted on a clear acrylic suspension and left to cure. The acrylic block is then sanded on one side using finer and finer grit sandpaper to ultimately reveal the cross-section of the sample. This sample is then secured to a wax or clay mount and placed under a microscope. The layers are viewed through a microscope eyepiece. 
In this manner, the coloration and number of layers can be categorized. When several examples from assorted paint surfaces in a room are treated using either approach, a chronochromatic chronology, which is a color sequence, can be created to recognize color palettes and determine when new construction occurred since the later construction will not replace all the layers of the earlier construction. Care must be taken when analyzing colors, since linseed oil in the paint or dirt on the surface or even ambient lighting may cause a color shift. Linseed oil yellows with age. Soot and nicotine can darken and shift colors to darker and brownish hues. Some layers may be a primer rather than a finished surface. Ambient lighting can enhance or diminish certain colors, depending on the type of lighting used. Full-spectrum light is best used when matching to avoid color shifts. To standardize colored designations instead of using manufacturer's multiple and arbitrary names for the same color, the Munsell and Oswald systems have been developed to enable color specifications through scientific designation. When a color has been designated in either of these systems, it can be then ordered from a manufacturer or local paint distributor. Although the Munsell and Oswald systems measure the same thing, their, their terminology and designation methods are slightly different. The Munsell system is based on hue, value, and chroma, which means saturation level. The Oswald system is based on hue, saturation, and brightness. In the historical approach, paint manufacturers created specific palettes based on paint color research done in the early 20th century for Colonial Williamsburg and later for other architectural periods that can be used to establish a possible color scheme found in the targeted restoration period. Although the sampling done using the scientific method may identify earlier combinations more precisely, the historical method uses a reproduction palette instead and provides appropriate color matching usually at a significantly lower cost. So much like conservation, the repair of murals, trompe l'oeil, and, <clears throat> and stenciling may require an experienced decorative painter a painting conservator to complete repairs appropriately. Such repairs should then be protected from damage for the duration of the project. Paint and clear finish repairs consist of applying compatible finish on the damaged surface. Critical to any repair is surface preparation. While it is not necessary to remove all layers of finish, the surface should be cleaned of loose flaking and peeling paint of finish. If necessary, Sharp edges can be scraped and sanded down. Interior painting and finishes can be reapplied as needed. For exterior locations, bare surfaces should be primed before applying new paint. For lead paint, it may be too costly to strip the woodwork. Instead, encapsulation may be the only and the appropriate answer. Some woodwork, such as doors, may cost-effectively be demounted and chemically stripped off-site. However, the wood may be damaged in the process of demounting and of the stripping solvents may adversely affect the wood, grain, and hues used to contrast the woodwork. When considering paint stripping off-site, 
Go to the facility where the stripping will be performed to verify the process and materials used. Lead paint may also be removed using a lead abatement contractor. Dust and effluent created by the stripping process must be carefully contained and disposed of properly following local health department guidelines. This on-site removal is most likely to be the more costly alternative in terms of time and labor costs, so budget accordingly. Completely stripping or replacing finishes is not recommended ever. The accumulated effects of wear, age, use, and environment have helped form a patina that provides character and authenticity. When a portion of the original finish has been lost, the process of applying glazes and other clear finishes should be left to those in the refinishing, uh, in the, the repairs and refinishers of furniture. In these situations, the assistance of a craftsperson or a finishes consultant is one of the most important, uh, utmost importance to match the uh, the tone and sheen of the remaining original finish. The final finish that matches the existing finish may result from a trial and error process that combines traditional finish recipes with modern commercial mixtures, for example, in rehabilitation work where it is often necessary to infill missing or damaged woodwork. It is common to apply samples <clears throat> of a test finish formulation to a separate piece of wood of a similar species to match in tone and sheen. Since age, unknown initial ingredients and long-term darkening or fading may have altered the original finish. Mixing several finished coloring additives to match the original finish exactly may be necessary. Samples of the chronology stored in off-site locations may become lost if unavailable. If removing finishes is necessary, then it is customary to leave uh, the the undisturbed portion of the finish that may serve as the physical on-site evidence of the previous accumulation of finishes. If future methods and processes emerge that can provide more accurate results than current technology, the undisputed portion can be used for future investigations. So that wraps up part two of protective and decorative finishes. Um, And if you want to see actually us in the the historic preservationists in the workshop or on site, go to the historic preservationist on our YouTube channel, the historic preservationist on our IG TV, TV channel and the historic preservationist on Instagram. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist signing out. Thanks for listening.